make it possible to approach your throne, Father. Through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, through the work of your Spirit in our hearts now, we give you praise. We give you praise. We give you thanks. We honor your name. As we continue in your presence, we ask that our minds and hearts will be receptive to all that you have for us through your servant and through your word. For your sake, we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Take your Bibles, if you would, and uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, and now that you're seated, uh, let us stand <laughs> to hear God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I want to begin with verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. There's one cross that really causes people to take notice. 
It stands outside a church in old Greenwich, Connecticut. It's made of raw, unpolished steel. When it rains, rusty drops roll off that cross like blood. On sunny days in winter, red holes dot the snow at its base. What must go through the minds of those who pass by that weathered symbol of the faith? More important, what is their response to its message? I selected the epistle lesson for this coming third Sunday in Lent. The 40 days from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday was for the purpose of preparing new converts for membership in the early Christian community. Over time, it included all believers who focused on spiritual self-examination and meditated on the meaning of Christ's passion and resurrection. I can think of no better attitude to journey toward Easter than that of searching our hearts and reflecting on the meaning of the cross and the empty tomb. We might say that Paul was in a Lenten-like mood writing about the scandal of the cross. What is the inspired truth of this text for those of us who are making this all-important journey? Well, I want to share with you this evening some things that God has laid on my heart. Culturally, as you know, Corinth was a booming seaport, a crossroads for travelers and traders. It was a relatively new Roman town, but a place steeped in Greek heritage. This Hellenistic tradition championed human knowledge. It glorified human wisdom. The familiar phrase, knowledge is power, describes Corinth quite well. Religiously, Corinth had 12 temples, including one dedicated to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Like any large commercial city, Corinth was a center of open and unbridled immorality. In a setting like this, it's easier to understand why the body of Christ there was plagued with numerous problems. In fact, in chapter 3, Paul says, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. Now, most of those who came into the church in Corinth were freedmen, recently released servants who sought to increase their status in society. They were concerned with getting ahead economically and socially, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, being in association with the right people. Self-promotion was the order of the day. What Paul wrote to them in this passage and why he confronted them with it would have seemed ridiculous and self-defeating. Right off, Paul begins tackling some of the issues in Corinth by pointing out division in their midst. Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul wanted the Corinthians to see the folly of their allegiance, to mere human beings. He dealt head-on with their mindset of seeking human understanding, clinging to certain magnetic personalities, following the latest trends of the day. He's emphatic. If you go down that road, you not only risk division, but more important, you risk robbing the cross of Christ 
of its very power. So Paul begins to build his case. First, listen to what Paul says about our crucified Savior and, on the, and the cross on which he died. Verse 18 again. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 21. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. Now follow the logic of Paul's argument. What was the message that was preached? Well, Paul makes that clear here, but also in chapter 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The message was Christ crucified, plain and sure. This message alone is the source of spiritual power for those who are being saved. And God was pleased to use this seemingly foolish strategy to save the lost. Being saved was not about following human personalities. Instead, salvation was determined by one thing, a person's response to the message of the cross. What seemed so weak a man dying on a cross, and therefore foolish in the eyes of those who didn't get it, actually turned out to bring salvation to the entire human race. Oswald Chambers wrote, The cross is the exhibition of the nature of God himself, the gateway to union with God. When we get to the cross, we do not go through it. We abide in the life to which the cross is the gateway. But Paul builds his case further. This message of Christ crucified, the only source of spiritual power, is foolishness to those who are perishing. Those who think the cross foolish will never experience the power of God unto salvation. Why? Very simple. Sadly, they are perishing precisely because they seek wisdom elsewhere. All worldly wisdom, all humanly devised systems, all human attempts to save oneself end in meaninglessness and despair. God cannot be bound by human definitions of wisdom and power. To reject the cross is to reject salvation itself. But those who embrace the cross see its wisdom and daily experience the saving and transforming power of God. And so, Paul says, God made foolish the wisdom of the world, meaning that God, through the crucifixion of his son on the cross, exposed worldly wisdom for what it really was, sheer foolishness. Now, as Paul builds his case, it seems clear to me that he is concerned about how we come to know God and how we make God known to others. And so, Paul comes back to the perishing. Well, who are the perishing? They include Jews apart from Christ and Greeks. Paul says, on the one hand... Jews demanded miraculous signs. The sign of all signs for the Jew was the Exodus, God's deliverance of his people from Egyptian bondage. 
Show us a sign. Validate your credentials with powerful displays. Their idolatry was in thinking they had God all figured out. God would make himself known, they believed, by simply repeating the Exodus in still greater splendor. On the other hand, Greeks were zealous for intellectual sophistication. Philosophical discourses on justice, authority, and power. Their civilization had advanced as none before them, and their idolatry was to think of God as ultimate reason, but what they deemed to be reasonable. And seemingly on every corner in every Greek city was the sophist, the wise man, who spent hours in mental acrobatics, splitting hairs and dispensing knowledge and solutions to the world's problems to all who would listen. Well, of course, the preaching of the cross, a crucified Savior, dismayed both groups. To the Jew, the cross was a symbol of defeat and shame. Their own law stated, he that is hanged is cursed by God. Joy Davidman reminds us even today, our generation has never seen a man crucified except in sugary religious art. But crucifixion, she writes, was not a sweet sight. And, a few of us, and few of us would dare to have a real picture of a crucifixion on our bedroom walls. A crucified slave beside the Roman road screamed until his voice died and then hung a filthy, festering clot of flies, sometimes for days. A living man whose hands and feet were swollen masses of discolored flesh. That is what our Lord took upon himself. That was the reality. And to many Jews, the cross was not a vehicle of triumph, but a stumbling block. Now to the Greeks, the cross just didn't make logical sense. The idea of incarnation, God involving himself in human affairs, the divine suffering, this was revolting to the Greek mind. No crucified criminal could be a savior. What kind of justice and power is that? A noble and great teacher dies a futile death on a cruel cross? That isn't wisdom or power. That's nonsense. As Martin Luther once wrote, the gospel cannot be preached without offense and tumult. But that's the point, isn't it? The revolutionary reversal. God turning everything upside down as he often does. The dividing line of human history. Paul himself wrote in chapter 2, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Here is wisdom that sees God at his most foolish moment being wiser than humans in our wisest moment. Here is power that recognizes God at his weakest moment being stronger than humans in our most powerful moment. As F.F. F. Bruce put it, 
This is God's folly, the divine contradiction. In the cross, God outsmarted human creatures and nullified their wisdom. In the cross, God overpowered his enemies with lavish grace and forgiveness and thereby emptied them of whatever strength they had. But sadly, there are those who still belong to this age. Could we not say that some people today, like the Jews, try to reach God through religious signs? Show me, prove it to me, God. Perform some miracle to demonstrate who you are. Or maybe the Jews represent those who seek only relief but not radical transformation. And so Christianity becomes just another self-help program. Could it be that some people today, like the Greeks, try to reach God through wisdom, however that may be defined? We all know that our age abounds with many spiritualities and human attempts to answer the profound questions of our earthly existence. Maybe the Greeks represent those who seek clever and easy explanations. And for these contemporary Greeks, Christianity becomes just one more pathway to a personalized religion. Sadly, those who misunderstand the cross or look past the cross are perishing, lost in their sin. But that's where, like St. Paul, you and I come into the picture. God's power is demonstrated in the weakness and the foolishness of the cross. But Paul also says the cross is our guarantee that God works through his called servants. All those who have come to believe and see the cross for what it is, God's plan of redemption. Here's the mind-blowing truth. If God can work through an instrument of death to bring salvation to the entire human race, he can work through any obedient vessel. The called ones, you and I, are living proof that God often chooses the weak, the uncultured, the lowly to advance the cause of Christ. Now, is Paul saying that Education and the acquisition of knowledge is unimportant. Is Paul saying that we should be uninformed about the ways and the trends of our world? Is Paul denying the importance of developing skills for effective ministry? Is Paul saying that we should dismiss creative methods and strategies for advancing the kingdom? Absolutely not. But I do think Paul is saying this. Whatever we called servants may rely upon to fulfill the ministry to which God has called us, nothing can take the place of proclaiming the good news of our crucified Savior. It won't make sense to the world. A crucified God hanging on the emblem of suffering and shame? It will be a stumbling block to many. It will seem like sheer foolishness to many others. In fact, we might even say the cross is far too radical, 
and subversive and controversial, even for sophisticated, user-friendly church marketers. It's an offense to comfort zone Christianity. Exactly. That's the point. It's God's plan, not ours. And as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, you know it, I am not ashamed of the gospel, our crucified Savior, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Next, I think Paul is saying this as well. Whatever we might be tempted to boast about, however we might define success, none of it compares with our faithfulness to lift high the cross. Now, Paul inserts his own testimony in the first part of chapter 2. You know, it's hard for me to picture Paul as weak and fearful and trembling. We all know he was well-educated. He showed great courage. He wrote some masterful letters. He devised a brilliant strategy for planting churches across the Roman Empire against incredible odds. But I think what Paul is saying here is that whatever eloquence or wisdom or persuasive words he had, it would have been of no effect if it lacked the Spirit's power and if it failed to focus on Christ and Him crucified. Galatians 6.14 May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says to us, defy the desire for signs and the pursuit of human wisdom or man-made spiritualities. Instead, find your confidence and fruitfulness by walking the way of Christ, which is the way of the cross. Guide others into that way. And here's the promise. What you say and how you live will be marked by a mighty demonstration of the Spirit's power. The very same power that raised our crucified Savior from the grave will enable you to advance the kingdom. Finally, I think Paul is saying this. Because the message we proclaim is often misunderstood, even mocked and scorned, as was our Savior, ministry will bring many unique pressures and challenges. In his second letter to Corinth, Paul wrote, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They cannot see the cross for what it is the place where God's love extended itself to sinful humanity. We do not preach ourselves, Paul wrote, our wisdom, our skill, our strategies. Instead, we preach Christ as Lord. And we have this treasure in jars of clay to show what? To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And so, when you come to the end of yourselves in ministry, when you feel grossly inadequate for the task before you, perhaps that's not such a bad place to be. When those times come, 
My prayer is that God will remind you of two things. First, your primary calling always is simply to tell the good news. Tell it and live it. Second, you will find effectiveness for ministry, fruit for the kingdom, only in the power of the cross, where God so perfectly demonstrated his love, compassion, and mercy. Lift high the cross, the love of Christ proclaim, till all the world adore his sacred name. Come, Christians, follow where our Savior trod, our King victorious, Christ the Son of God. Led on their way by this triumphant sign, the hosts of God in conquering ranks combine. O Lord, once lifted on this glorious tree, as thou hast promised, draw men unto thee. Set up thy throne, that earth's despair may cease beneath the shadow of its healing peace. For thy blessed cross, which doth for all atone, creation's praises rise before thy throne. Lift high the cross, the love of Christ proclaim, till all the world adore his sacred name. Amen. Gracious God, we are so thankful for the cross. what you accomplished there on our behalf through the sacrifice of your Son, our Savior and our Lord. May we never boast in anything but what we see there and what we have experienced because of his broken body and shed blood. And as we go forth from this place, O oh God, may we be ever more determined by the power of the Holy Spirit within us to lift high the cross. To your honor, to your praise, to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.